If you have a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 15 as we continue in our study of the book of Acts this semester. Acts chapter 15 is where we're going to be this morning. No doubt many of you have either read the novel or seen one of the movies or the musical of Les Miserables, the story written in the 19th century by Victor Hugo. Uh, It's a story that continues to emerge in various adaptations over the years. Uh, If you've not seen it or read it or aren't familiar with the story, let me summarize a little bit in brief. The story really centers around a convict by the name of Jean Valjean who lives in Paris during the early part of the 19th century. Jean Valjean, as a young man, went to prison for stealing a loaf of bread, and he was there for 19 years before he got parole. Upon his parole, uh, he had a hard time finding a place to stay, finding a job, being integrated back into society. Nobody would take in this former convict until uh, one night a bishop, Bishop Muriel, took him into his home and agreed to give him a place to stay. To return the favor, Jean Valjean, in the middle of the night, stole all of the bishop's silver and ran away. And he was caught by the police and he faced going back to prison, at which point the bishop told the police, no, it's a gift. I gave him the silver. And then he looks at Valjean and he says, use this silver to purchase for yourself a new life. And so Valjean ran away. He began a new life in anonymity, but he was discovered by Inspector Javert. And uh, if you're familiar with the story, you know that Inspector Javert is this relentless policeman who has a belief that a convict can never change. Once a convict, always a convict. And so he centers upon the theme of the law all the way through this story. Javert represents the law. The law is unyielding, unbending. The law must enforce justice. And Jean Valjean, because of the grace that he has been shown, begins to display grace to others in his life. But Inspector Javert cannot understand, believe, or accept that grace. And without giving too much of the story away, if you're not familiar with it, uh, in fact, it is grace that ultimately undoes Inspector Javert. Not only can he not believe in grace, he can't receive grace. And so when grace is extended to him, it destroys him. And the story has endured for, obviously, around 150 years at this point. And even though, originally, it really got bad reviews. The novel got pretty bad reviews. The musical, which is now the longest-running musical in the history of Broadway, got bad reviews. Uh, Many of the movies get bad reviews. People didn't often like the themes of the movie, particularly this idea of the unconditional grace that can be extended to a person that can transform their life. Uh, But I think many of us resonate with the themes of that story because we want to believe that grace can transform, don't we? We want to believe that even the worst offender is not beyond the hope of redemption through grace. That's ultimately the message of the gospel. And it's fascinating, Victor Hugo himself was not a Christian man, but what he saw in the religion of his culture was such a strong emphasis on law that he wrote this story to say, this is what I wish Christianity was like. If only he had known that in Jesus Christ, law and grace come together in a way that fulfills the law and provides for the eternal life of God's people freely 
Because Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, met all the demands of the law. And now for all who trust in Jesus, our failure to keep the law is forgiven through him. And so grace and law meet perfectly in Jesus. That message was so challenging and difficult for the early church to understand that they fought about it all the time. It was the preeminent issue that divided the early church. Are we saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus, or are we saved by keeping the law? What's fascinating to me is that that issue has continued to be probably the predominant issue that has divided the church through the two millennia of the church's existence. If you look back in the fourth century, the great theological controversy of the fourth century centered around two men, one named Pelagius, the other named Augustine. Pelagius argued that grace was simply the ability to earn God's favor by what we do, that God had given you and me the ability just to do the right thing, and if we did enough of the right things, then we could know God. Right? Augustine said that's absolutely incorrect. But instead, the grace of God is the unmerited favor that God gives to those who cannot keep his law. And uh, Pelagius was condemned as a heretic, but he keeps popping up as you go throughout the history of the church. So that by the 16th century, this issue of grace versus law became the issue that launched the Protestant Reformation because Martin Luther was a man who lived under this deep burden of the law that he could not fulfill and he hated God until he began to read Romans and Galatians and understand that the grace of God meant that Jesus fulfilled the law we could not fulfill. And it pops up in sub-Christian and non-Christian religions even to this day. Mormonism is an example of modern-day Pelagianism that says one must keep God's law in order to receive eternal life. And so it keeps popping up, and I think it often even pops up in the way we talk about the gospel and in the way we talk about Jesus. If our gospel is believe in Jesus plus anything else means that you have eternal life, then that is the gospel of works. And the early church had to wrestle with this, and we see this conflict really come to a head most sharply in Acts chapter 15. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 15 this morning. And the question that should be sort of resonating in our minds as we look at Acts chapter 15 is, do I believe and proclaim the gospel of grace? Do I believe and proclaim that eternal life is a gift given only by the free gift of God's grace, and that grace is absolutely free. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Acts chapter 15. Uh, Look at verse 1 with me. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. 
But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. All right, so the first thing we see in Acts 15 is this, that grace divides. It's interesting, the message of the good news of grace divides the early church in half. So let me set the stage. Remember, Paul and Barnabas have just finished their first missionary journey. They were sent out by the church of Antioch. As they go throughout the uh, ancient world in Asia Minor and they share the gospel, Gentiles are coming to believe in Jesus. They go back to Antioch to report to the church what God is doing. And there's some Pharisees, some teachers of the Jewish law who have trusted in Christ, who stand up and they say, you know what, you need to go back to those people and add something to the message. And that, that what you need to add is this, that they need to be circumcised. They need to obey the law. Uh, Because the Pharisees had lived for thousands of years under the belief that the way to know God, the way to be approved of by God was keeping the law. Now, the reality is that was never actually true. The reality is that always men and women have been dependent upon the grace of God, ultimately expressed in Jesus Christ. The law had multiple purposes, but it never had the purpose of providing eternal life. And in fact, Paul makes that clear throughout his letters, Romans and Galatians. The law highlights sin. The law reveals the holiness of God. The law can never justify. Right? But these Pharisees believed that it did. And the, the conflict became so sharp that they said, we need to go to Jerusalem and talk to the bigwigs. We need to go to talk with the apostles. So they go and they meet with the apostles and they begin this debate and some more people stand up and they say, no, they need to be circumcised and they need to obey the law. And what the Pharisees are trying to do is say, look, yes, Jesus died and yes, Jesus rose again and yes, Jesus paid the penalty of sin, but you got to pay for that, right? There are no free gifts in life, no free lunches, right? Imagine that uh, you came over to my home after church for lunch and we cook grilled chicken and we have corn on the cob and buttery rolls and all of this goodness and we eat and we talk and as we get to the end of the meal at the end of the conversation I say hey this was great you guys ready for the check you go I kind of thought this was this was free I go nothing's free what did you you thought this was free look how much food is on the table and this cost me some money I'm gonna go write out the check all right that's 36 dollars okay you, you would likely not come back, and you'd, you'd go, now, wait a second, this was intended to be a gift, right? Or look at it from another angle. Those of us who have children, you know that children are somewhat expensive, right? They cost some money. Okay? In fact, I, yeah, I read a, a stat that said from the time they are zero to the time they are 18, per child, uh, you will on average spend $245,000 raising those children. So when you get to their high school graduation, here's what you do, right? You write out a bill, okay? Don't you? Here you go, $245,000. You owe me that much money. No, of course you don't do that, right? <laughs> Yeah, you, you keep paying for them for the rest of your life, right? Like, yeah. No, of course you don't do that. You don't write out a bill. Here's why, because they're part of your family, right? They're part of your family. Family inclusion is a free gift. You pay for it. They don't pay for it. See, often when people hear this message of the good news of grace, that that salvation, eternal life is absolutely free, the accusation lobbied against the gospel is, well, that's cheap grace. That's easy believism. And here's the deal. Uh, Grace is not cheap. It's absolutely free. It's incredibly costly for the one who gives the gift, but it's absolutely free for the one who receives the gift. 
Grace does not cost the receiver. It costs the giver. Jesus gave all so that we might have life. Here's the deal. The word grace in the Greek language, it means gift. It means gift. To even talk about grace you have to pay for negates the meaning of the word. Right? That's why Paul will say this in Romans chapter 11, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Grace that is not free isn't grace. So if my gospel, as they are proclaiming it here in Acts, as these Pharisees are saying, if my gospel includes Jesus plus something else to receive eternal life, you have to accept Jesus plus be baptized. You have to accept Jesus plus be nicer to your family. You have to accept Jesus plus stop sinning. That's not the good news of grace. Now, we're going to talk about in a few moments, where does, where does the concept of good works fit into the message of Jesus, right? And it has its place, but its place is not to earn eternal life. It's not even to prove that I have it. Because the good news is that Jesus paid, what, it all. We sing it all the time. Jesus paid it all. And a number of years ago, uh, some Mormon missionaries came to my door and we began to talk about the nature of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. And I showed them the passage that Chris read earlier, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So they have a corresponding passage in the Book of Mormon from 2 Nephi. It says, for by grace you are saved after all you can do. You see the distinction. In fact, they gave an illustration to me. They said, now imagine you want to buy a bicycle and you gather up all your money. You're eight years old. You gather up all your money and and all summer you save your money. You do a paper route and you come up with $25, but the bicycle costs $200. So you go to your dad and you say, I can't afford the bicycle. And he says, well, what do you have? And you give him your $25 and he goes, okay, I'll take that $25 and I'll add the $175 and now you can buy the bicycle. And they say, that's what God has done for us. And my answer to that is no, 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 no. No, okay? you don't have $25. Okay? You have zero, nothing. And so the Pharisees are saying, look, you've got to add your two cents, your 25 bucks, whatever it is. You work as hard as you can, and then maybe Jesus makes up the rest. And the apostles are saying, absolutely not. Jesus paid it all. And so grace splits this community into between those who proclaim the free grace of God through Jesus Christ and those who say, mm, there's still something you've got to pay for. Have you and I wrestled with and grasped the reality that the good news of God is that Jesus has provided eternal life for us absolutely free? There's nothing you can add because you and I have nothing to contribute except our sin. Jesus paid it all. So grace, just as it does today, it divides this congregation. And yet Paul and Barnabas and the apostles recognize, secondly, that not only does it divide, but it's actually worth the fight. Look at verses 7 through 12 of chapter 15. Actually, we'll start in verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. 
After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. It's interesting, uh, Paul and Barnabas make a special trip to go to Jerusalem to fight over the issue of grace. Now, throughout the New Testament, uh, as you look at the book of Galatians, it's interesting because the book of Galatians is one where Paul argues strenuously for the grace of the gospel. But there are other things he won't fight about. He won't fight about which festivals they should celebrate on which days. Right? There are certain things he says that is not worth the fight and other things he says are worth the fight. He won't fight about whether to eat or drink certain foods, whether to eat meat or not to eat meat. He says, look, this is a matter of conviction. But when it comes to the grace of God, he puts on the boxing gloves. And he absolutely says this is worth the fight because it is central to the message of Jesus Christ. If you lose grace, boy, you lose the whole ball of wax. And so Romans, Galatians, the majority of Paul's writings, in fact, are centered around preserving the message of grace. This past week, uh, I, on Twitter, I, I follow Tom Rayner. He's the president of Lifeway Research, a very big Christian research company. And he tweeted to some of his followers, can you share with me some stories of things you have seen churches argue about or fight about? And so people began to tweet back some of the things that they had heard churches fighting about. Here's just a few that uh, I saw. People have fought about what to wear to church, right? Should you wear a tie? Should you wear jeans? Whatever should you wear? Uh, One person said, our church fought about whether or not to stand while singing, I stand in awe of you. The answer is probably yes, right? But is that worth fighting about? Uh, one, ch- one guy said, our church fought about which side of the stage on which to place the piano and said, we even had a business meeting with a secret ballot to vote on which side to put the piano on. Uh, one church fought over which day to have their Easter egg hunt and held a large business meeting over that. Uh, people said they have fought about beards, about the color of the new carpet, who got to decide which dishwasher to buy for the kitchen, should there be VeggieTales videos in the nursery, and this was my favorite, can we take some of the paper plates from the church to the beach for an outreach event? And they said that was a four-hour meeting that nearly split the church over paper plates. Now, we chuckle at that, we shake our heads at that, but here's my question. How often do we argue, fight, get up in a tizzy about things that are not central to the message of the gospel? All of those are things I think that Paul and the apostles would say, look, set those things aside because they are issues of conviction. They are issues on which we can find unity. But on this issue of the good news of the gospel, yeah, I'll put on the gloves because it should trouble us deeply that there are churches and men and women who represent to proclaim the good news and yet the good news that they proclaim is not good news. That they say you have to earn 
or prove or work hard to keep God's unmerited favor. That's not the good news. And so when they get to Jerusalem, Peter stands up. He says, look, this is what God has done. And you all have seen what God has done through me as he's expanded the message to the Gentiles and the message that God is proclaiming is that just like us, they are saved by grace through faith. So why would we put a yoke on them that even we couldn't ever bear? Nobody was ever justified by keeping the law because nobody ever kept it. Only through the death and resurrection of Jesus do people find eternal life. And so they're willing to fight. And they're willing to fight because they recognize that the gospel is the only hope. The gospel is the only hope of eternal life. All right, look at uh, the following verses, verses 13 to 18. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return. And I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. James affirms what Peter had said, which is this, that all from the beginning of history, God's plan had been to draw Gentiles together with Jews under the banner of Jesus Christ through the power of grace. And so grace is the only hope. The law never justified. And Peter uh, Peter says that, Paul says that, Barnabas says that, and now James stands up and says that grace is the only hope of eternal life. You don't just need a little grace in addition to what you already have. All right, imagine that uh, you wake up in the night and your house is on fire, all right? And uh, you look out in the living room in the kitchen and you see flames licking up the walls. What are you going to do? Well, here's what you're not going to do. You're not going to roll over to your spouse and say, sweetie, would you turn the uh, air conditioner down just a couple of degrees? It is kind of warm in here, right? Nor are you going to say, I need to take off this sweater and kind of get cooler, right? You're going to call 911 and get out of the house, aren't you? Because you don't just need it to be a little cooler. You need life-saving intervention. You don't just need a little bit of help. I don't need just a little bit of help. We need a life-saving intervention. And so the good news of grace is the only hope, the only hope of eternal life. There is no other way apart from trusting in Jesus. So as we talk about the good news then of grace. And we say, look, you can't fulfill the law. You cannot do enough. You cannot prove your salvation by works, right? Because non-Christians can still do good stuff, can't they? Just because you do good stuff doesn't prove that you know Jesus. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot keep your salvation. As we say that, the question always emerges then, well, then what is the role of works? Is the message of the gospel that once you believe in Jesus, you can just sin all that you want and it doesn't matter? Right? And that question, in fact, is not a new question. Paul took that question up in the book of Romans, particularly chapters 6 through 8. Should we keep on sinning so, just so that grace may increase? In other words, do I just keep doing bad stuff so that God will keep gracing me more and more and more and more? And Paul says that's a ridiculous concept. Right? You know why? For two reasons. One, because if you know Jesus, 
You have died to sin. You died with him. Right, why would you want to go back into the slop and the mud? It makes no sense. Why would you want to re-enslave yourself? He doesn't come back and say, well, you need to do good stuff because you need to prove that God loves you. You need to do good stuff because you need to earn your way to God's favor. No, the reason for our works is because God has moved into our hearts in Jesus Christ. And through the power of the Spirit, now we have the ability to reflect Him through what we do. Good works are always a result and a response to what God has done. They're never a means to earn His favor. In fact, prior to the grace of God in our lives, we have no ability to perform the type of works with the type of motivation and the type of power that would even please God. That's why the author of Hebrews will say, without faith it is impossible to please God. And that's why Paul in Romans chapter 8 will say this, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here's fundamentally what he's saying. As long as I am trying, trying, trying to earn God's favor through what I do, I will fail, I will fail, I will fail. But for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and received the grace of God, the spirit moves in. And now instead of submitting to the law of the flesh, as Paul says, we now submit to the law of the spirit and he produces in our lives wrought by grace, the works that God calls us to do. Not so we can earn eternal life, not so we can prove we have it, but because we already do. And it testifies to the character of God and the grace of Jesus. And grace is our only hope of eternal life. We add nothing to that message. As I've mentioned before, Grace tends to divide. It tends to create conflict because there's something within us, something sinful within us that stokes our pride to believe if I can just do a little bit better than you, then I can know I'm in and maybe you're not. That was at the heart of this debate. The leaders of the Jewish people were accustomed to being able to look at others and say, you're out and I'm in. Let's draw a circle, right? And all the good people stand inside the circle, and all the not-so-good people stand outside the circle. And as we've talked about, as we've looked at the book of Acts, the grace of God in Jesus Christ says, no, there is, there is uh, a circle, and inside that circle is Jesus, and outside the circle is everybody else, because none of us are capable of earning our way in. But instead, Jesus opens the circle and says, because of what I have done, come in. All who believe in me, just step in. And I will empower you with all that you need to know God, to serve God, to worship God, and to perform the works he's called you to do in Jesus Christ. But forgiveness of our sins and eternal life is an absolutely free gift. That's the meaning of grace. And what's remarkable then is once the church centers themselves on this concept of grace, then what grace actually does is although it divides, then it ultimately 
creates unity, that, that grace seeks to create unity. Once they center on what is central, then they are able to move on and say, okay, here's some things that are non-essential that we can let go. Look at uh, verse 20. James says, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from, and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles." Greetings, since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Okay, here's what's going on. The uh, early church looks and they say, although we are saved by the grace of God, there are certain issues that will divide Jew from Gentile unnecessarily, particularly the things you eat. You sit down with your Jewish brother or sister in Christ and you bring a chicken and you drain the blood out on your plate and you lick it up, that is going to divide it, right? Abstain from things sacrificed to idols, abstain from blood, abstain from things strangled, and abstain from fornication, which is probably a reference to the fact that Gentiles in their marriages were less strict than the Jews were about uh, whom they married. In other words, the Jews had very strict requirements about incest that involved certain levels of cousins you could and could not marry, different people that might be in your family. And if you look at Leviticus 18, uh, breaking those uh, regulations would have split the community. In general, Gentile sexual ethics were more relaxed than Jewish sexual ethics. And so the apostles say, look, avoid these things in particular because they will split the community in half. And what we're seeking is unity around one central message, and that is the message of Jesus. And I love what they do because it communicates this, that some things we will fight for, other things set aside your rights for the sake of the gospel. What are the things that we really get up in arms about that we feel the need to claim our rights? I saw a couple of times going around Facebook, I think this week, a big controversy about Starbucks using cups that don't say Merry Christmas. Is that going to be our legacy that we want to fight for? Or will it be the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Uh, When I was serving our college ministry, one of our older elders of the church, one of our founding elders who's now since passed away. He used to sit in the back of the room with his wife and they would serve the students. They'd hand out donuts and uh, I would talk to him uh, during the week, but also on Sunday morning. And one of the things that he would tell me, it was interesting, he would say, I love seeing the college students come in and I love that they're hearing the word. And then he he would say something like, I don't really care for the music too much. He called it hell's bells music. 
right? And he would always say, he would always say, like, don't tell the worship leader that I feel this way. And I always thought, I, I think he probably has an inkling, right? Because uh, we recognize we're of different generations. But here, here's what he would say. He would say, I love the fact that I see these students worshiping God, and it's connecting with them. And so I can sit in here and deal with music that isn't my favorite, because they're hearing of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And I thought, what a sweet illustration of a man who knew what was important and knew what was secondary. Just as the early church said, we can set aside these things that we cling to tightly and say, I have to fight about this. I need to write a blog post or put something on Twitter or just go argue with my friends. And the grace of God seeks unity to say there is one thing that ultimately we cannot compromise on, and that is eternal life is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that has implications and results and an outworking in our lives. But what is fundamental is that we know God through what he has done. And then we sift out what is primary and what is secondary. See, issues that are directly tied to the good news of the gospel, we will fight for. So the deity of Jesus Christ is a good one. There is no eternal life if Jesus is just another guy. The message of grace, the bodily resurrection. And then there are other issues that are secondary. Right? It's why I and our other pastors, I, I'm cautious about speaking about things that are political issues or things that are conviction issues and speaking on those with the same degree of conviction as we talk about the grace of God. Because while secondary issues may be important, they aren't central. And the early church recognizes what we will fight for, what we will die for, is that Jesus died and rose again to offer grace freely that leads to eternal life. So the question, a couple of questions then as we close. Do, do you believe in the grace of God? Right? Maybe that you came in this morning and, and somewhere in your mind you still think, I need to earn God's favor by what I do, or I need to prove that I'm saved by what I do. Or I need to keep my salvation by what I do. Do you recognize that the gospel is that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for every area in which you and I fall short. Everything you've done, everything you will do, everything you did this morning on the way to church, that argument you had with your wife, that thing you said to your kids, Jesus died to pay the penalty and rose again. He defeated death and sin so that you and I can know him and live with him forever. And it is solely by grace through faith. You believe in the grace of God, and do you proclaim God's grace? Or is there something when you share the gospel that you always want to smuggle in the back door? Do we live out a form of Pelagianism that says, if you're a Christian, then there's something that you must do to earn God's favor? Do we proclaim the good news of Jesus and then allow the Spirit to work out the implications of God's grace in the lives and the hearts of those around us as well as in our own lives and hearts? Do we believe God's grace? Do we proclaim God's grace? Would you pray with me?
Father, we're so grateful for your word. We want to follow the illustration of those men and women who, who served you early on. Father, we recognize that they were men and women like us, and sometimes they did argue and fight about things that were secondary, and they lost sight of what was central. But we want to look at their example, particularly in Acts 15, and recognize that the grace of God in Jesus Christ offers eternal life freely to all who believe in you. So we pray we would trust that. We pray we would proclaim that. We pray uh, for those of us who are in here who struggle even to accept that, that we would. And we pray that your spirit would move in us to work in our hearts and our lives the things that you want us to do, to say, and to believe. And we're grateful for this time, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.